Hello, and welcome to this episode of the ASHA podcast. I'm Fred Wine with the American Sexual Health Association, ASHA. Today, we're continuing our series of discussions about a very common sexually transmitted infection, trichomoniasis, or trick, that many people have never heard of, despite the fact it's incredibly common. There's more than 2 million cases in the U.S. alone. Uh, trick is a, it, it's a parasite. It's a parasitic infection. The organism that causes it is called trichomonas vaginalis. And while most cases don't really cause any or have any obvious symptoms, there are some adverse health outcomes that are associated with TRIC. So it's important to talk about. And a TRIC, you know, like other STIs, it really affects some populations more than others. So of course, we can't look at TRIC or STIs uh, just as a matter of medicine. We have to look at the societal perspective um, too, including a lot of the inequities that we still struggle with. So we're gonna explore all that today with our special guest, Dr. Denise Lenton. Dr. Linton, welcome. Thank you for spending some time with us. Hi, Mr. Warren. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Well, we're, we're, we're really happy to spend some time with you. So Dr. Linton is a family nurse practitioner. She holds a doctor of nursing science degree. She's been a researcher and an educator, but she's also spent her career on the front lines taking care of patients and communities. So she's the perfect one to explore this with. So let's just jump right in and let's start, we'll talk about women. Um, it's often been said that sexually transmitted infections, STIs are sexist because women are more susceptible to uh, many of these infections. Uh, would you just talk a bit, why are women at increased risk? Well, the thing about it is that when we think about the female anatomy, where everything is pretty close to each other, you have the external genital area, then it leads directly into the vaginal area, which is very close by. Then that leads into the cervix. And then the cervix leads into the actual womb. So you have infectious agents that actually migrate from the outside to the inside, and it can even get to the fallopian tubes and cause problems. So unfortunately, those are some factors that influence how women are adversely impacted by these infections. And then to the vaginal area, it does have a pH with regard to acidity versus alkalinity. And when the pH changes, then some microorganisms can really multiply. And then if some microorganisms that cause diseases that have to be treated, if they are there, then certain environment will promote their growth. So not only are women more prone perhaps to get these infections, a lot of times there's just many more adverse outcomes. I mean, I touched on that a little bit earlier that that can impact women. Would you just talk a little bit about, with, with thinking about trick, trichomoniasis specifically, what are some things that can happen with women if, if, if it's undetected as it often is because there you know, often you know, won't be any obvious symptoms? Well, the thing about it is that, as you said, there are times when there are not obvious symptoms, but trichomoniasis or trick, as you said, it is not a benign condition. So we should not think that having trick is untreated trichomoniasis is okay. Because what happens is that if a woman becomes pregnant, then they can have preterm birth, 
There can also be premature rupture of membranes and then babies can be born smaller than their gestational age. Unfortunately too, they've done meta-analyses that demonstrate that there's also increased risk of cervical cancer among these women and that women who are who tend to have trichomoniasis, they're at increased risk for having HIV. And I've actually had a patient who was having recurrent trichomoniasis because her partner wasn't getting treated. And then I tested her for HIV and she was HIV positive, unfortunately. So there are times when we read things in the literature and we are thinking that's very unlikely, but I do have personal experience where that happened. And in the beginning, I was talking about the relationship of the genital organs and that infectious agents can actually travel up to the body of the womb as well as the fallopian tube so women can actually have pelvic inflammatory disease so it should not be taken lightly now it doesn't sound like it at all that's um that that's a lot that can go on for something that may not even cause the obvious symptoms in the beginning and it I, I noted what you mentioned about the fact that it's associated with a greater likelihood of, of acquiring or, or being diagnosed with HIV. I, you know, ahead of this podcast, I, I, I did a little bit of research and, and I remember reading that, yeah, women with a trick are more likely to not only acquire HIV, but I believe if they have HIV, they're more likely to transmit it as well. So that's a lot to think about. Um, yeah, and it's definitely not trivial. Um, let me, let me digress for a second. We've both mentioned a couple times there often aren't symptoms with trick, but when symptoms do, I mean, I mean, when symptoms happen, what, what would a woman maybe expect to see? Well, the thing about it is that a lot of times women may have a vaginal discharge and it is not a pleasant smelling odor. It's usually malodorous, as we say. So usually patients, women will seek healthcare services from their healthcare provider because they're having this discharge that doesn't really smell well. A lot of times there may be a little irritation to the outside, to the external genitalia. That's the part that you can actually see. And then backing up a little bit, that vaginal discharge may be a little yellowish, whitish. Unfortunately, Sometimes people will say that they have a yeast infection or they have a bacterial vaginosis, which is commonly known as BV. And if they call and say, I have those infections, it is important that we don't say agree with them because sometimes the vaginitis, they can mimic each other. I've seen cases where you thought that it was maybe a yeast infection because there was a little irritation on the external genitalia because of itching but then it wasn't when we took other things into consideration sometimes you think about bv which is a little fishy odor sometimes with trichomonas you can have that little fishy odor mm -hmm. and then sometimes women may take the ph because you have things over the counter that women may actually use to determine what is going on with them, but you cannot use the pH in isolation. 
the vaginal area, it has a certain acidity, acidity, alkalinity balance. And sometimes when we think about maybe a pH of 4.5 or higher, we think about trichomoniasis or we can also think about bacterial vaginosis. So it's important that you go to your healthcare provider to see exactly what is going on. So those are some of the, the signs and symptoms that women may have if they have the trichomoniasis. You touched on a couple of things there that are so important. So these symptoms can mimic other pretty common things. I'm sure a lot of women with these symptoms are like you said, oh, it's a yeast infection or something like that. I'll just go to the drugstore and get something and take care of it myself. But it sounds like you, of course, know that the only way to really figure it out is to test. And that and that's the key thing, right? Not relying on, on the symptoms. Um, Let's talk about that for a second. So how do you test for trick? Well, the thing about it is that, as we said before, remember that women may not have any symptoms. So there are certain groups of women, if they come to see you annually, it's important that you check because they may not have symptoms. And those women are those, women are those who are incarcerated, those who are HIV positive, it's important that you check them for the trichomoniasis. If you are in a sexually transmitted infection clinic, because trichomoniasis can coexist with gonorrhea and chlamydia. So it's very important that you actually do that annually on these patients or if they come to see you more frequently. So then those women who present with symptoms, we, but if you think about testing to diagnose diseases, we usually think about sensitivity and specificity of a test. And as healthcare providers, we really want to identify diseases in people who have it. And we want to make sure that people who do not have the disease that our tests do not say that they have of the disease, because especially with a sexually transmitted disease, it's very embarrassing to be told that you have it. And this diagnosis stays in your record. And unfortunately, there's some judgment that's associated with it. So we can have wet mount that we can conduct in the clinic, in the healthcare setting. But usually we have to pass a speculum and actually obtain the discharge from the vaginal area or from the cervix area. And then we can attach it to slides and then get it tested. Then we can also send off the culture for testing. But the beautiful thing is that the FDA has approved some additional tests because those tests that I just mentioned, their sensitivity and specificity are not very high. And they tend to be inexpensive, so people tend to like that. But as I said before, it's not very good for this woman who will be labeled as having a history of sexually transmitted infections. So we've actually evolved to like single use, rapid point of care testing, where the person can actually wait and the sensitivity and the specificity is so high that it is likely that if it is says that the woman is positive, then she does have that condition. We tend to take it for granted. We think about healthcare providers not having enough time or not being told 
are being told by insurance companies that you only have 15 minutes to see a patient. But a lot of times you are not thinking that these women are busy people too, and they really don't want to stay with us. So if we can have a test that we can have them come to see us for a problem, and then within 30 minutes or so, they can be assured to say you have it or you don't have it, then I think that that's a very good thing to happen. So those tests you're talking about, the, those rapid tests, those are uh, like, like, like PCR uh, molecular tests, right? Yes, yes. Yeah. So, all right, so you, you hit on one really big advantage there in that they, they seem to, to really do a, an excellent job of detecting, uh, detecting not only the infection, but the right infection. And uh, they are, as the name implies, rapid so that you're not, I mean, with some of the other tests like you mentioned like the wet mount and the culture, those could take a while, a few days or whatever to get results back, right? Yes, yes, yeah. definitely. We do want quick. We want quick and accurate. Quick and, and accurate. These, yes, and these tests go. do have that, yes. That's the tagline, okay, all right. Yeah, things have changed so much. There's so many technologies, and this is probably confusing for a lot of uh, providers, too. I mean, now you just get, it's great to have all these options, but you do have a lot of options. So uh, there's probably an education piece that would be good to go along with that, uh, too. That's, uh, that's a lot to think about. All right. As healthcare providers, we really do have to keep abreast of what is going on. When I taught nurse practitioner students, I always said, when I started out in healthcare, things remained the same for 20, 25 years, but not so now. And it's a wonderful thing because as I said, there's increased accuracy. So it's a good thing. So it's important that as healthcare providers, we're attending conferences to find out what's new about these things. We are reading our journal articles to find out what's new. And then going to those who are in administration to say, well, this is what's there. How about we have it in our setting so that we can provide high quality care to our patients? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So let me pivot just a bit and talk about some of the social aspects of this. I mean, as in, a, in, in, the, in the opening, I talked about, as with many STIs, you know, including TRIG, I mean, racial and ethnic minorities bear a disproportionate burden of cases. And we know this is because society is unequal in so many ways and these inequities make it harder to achieve good health uh, as individuals and as communities. Uh, would you talk a bit about how structural racism drives health inequality, including with STIs like TRIC? Well, the thing about it is that if we go back, I really do agree that structural racism does impact what is going on with STIs in minority groups. If we go back to how healthcare providers are educated, they are educated to expect that minority women will have STIs, but that is not necessarily the case. And if it is so, now we are talking about social determinants of health what else is going on in that person's environment. We think about STIs as occurring mostly in women who are less than high school education. A lot of times these women could be in relationships where they're being abused. But what are we doing about that? Are we helping them? 
when they come to see us, do we try to do anything to get them out of that situation? If they come to the women's health clinic, they cannot bring their children with them. How can they get healthcare services if they cannot bring their children with them? Who should they leave their children with to come and see us to get taken care of? If they are being forced to have sex with somebody who refuses to be treated or who says that you are the one who gave it to me, so I'm going to give you a beating, then what is that about? So we, in the environment, you assume that women are sleeping around, they have multiple partners when they have this, when it is not necessarily so. You know, that's a really good point. And, and, and thank you for bringing that up. And, and so we, this is a good time to just clarify the reason that the reasons that there are more cases of STIs in some of these communities, it's not because they're doing anything uh, irresponsible. It's not because they're promiscuous. It's simply because a lot of times they're just simply living in a community or an environment where STIs are more prevalent. You know, the, the, the risk is greater, even if the behavior is exactly the same is somebody maybe in a more privileged setting. Um, and then when you get to some of the things you were talking about, the access, uh, the barriers to access and care, uh, the stigma that we build into it, um, all of that on top of it, that I think that goes along with explaining why you have these uh, inequalities and you really, you were much more eloquent than I am about it. So thank you for, for laying that out. But I think it's just so important that sometimes even in having the conversation, I think if we're not thinking through how to have the conversation, that is so we can intentionally bring our own, bring stigma to it. And that, so thank you for not letting this conversation go in that direction. Those are so important. Yes, yes. And the thing about it is that, of course, you said it eloquently as well. You basically rounded off what I said, what I was trying to say as well, or you validated what I said. And one of the things that we all have our biases and it's important that we are aware of them. And sometimes you think that people are in monogamous relationships, but it takes one time with somebody who is not their partner. So I never assumed that because somebody was married or because they were white or because they were Christians or those other factors, I just look at the vaginal discharge. And so I could always honestly say to my patients, any woman who comes to see me with vaginal discharge, I check them for trichomonas and I've had a lot of surprises, surprises in quotes, yes, because the person who you think doesn't have it, that's the person who has it. And then researchers are responsible for what's going on too, because as you said, where there's high prevalence of the disease, if you conduct research there, of course you will find a lot of it. So it's important that we find heterogeneous groups that we are conducting research in and comparing them. So urban versus rural areas and so on. Do you, let me ask you this, do you think that there's an issue with, uh, with clinics that serve uh, uh, populations that, that, are, that are underprivileged, that maybe 
they don't always have the resources in terms of the latest testing. Like, for example, we talked about some of the newer, more sophisticated tests, some of the rapid point of care uh, uh, testing. Is that also one of these problems that a lot of times these communities just simply don't have access to the latest or to the full array of technology? Almost definitely. That, that is an important point that you're bringing up because a lot of times quick, accurate, and better equals more dollar signs, which the rural communities cannot afford. But I am a pretty positive person, and I'm saying that we do have some wealthy people out there who can make donations to those clinics. So we can have communities that have some wealth where they can actually look to see who can I assist with improving what these people have access to. And you know, there is something about what we are doing with our podcast about getting information out there. There's a lot to be said about disseminating information because if we don't, we won't realize that there's a problem. So I would like to call upon my rural colleagues to write it, to mm. get the information out there because a lot of people who are working in rural communities, they love the people who they are taking care of, yeah. but their hands are really tied because a lot of times these patients, they are uninsured. And in order to keep a business open, let's face it, healthcare is a business. You have to be getting money so that you can keep your doors open. So we need to be more mindful of that and try to have grants available and actually go out there and try to help these groups. Yeah, and I'm glad that you spent some time talking about rural areas. They, they are definitely uh, comprised of communities that have a lot of health challenges, a lot of health inequity issues. And I think a lot of times we don't think of rural areas quite, you know, quote, quite in the way that we should in, in terms of understanding their needs and, you know, how uh, we're failing them. So uh, thank you for bringing that up. Um, yeah, so we've talked a lot about some barriers that patients have. And uh, you touched a little bit earlier too on when you were teaching your, uh, uh, your nursing students, how you would really talk to them about sexual health. And I wanna just explore that with you. I mean, we probably need to do a better job of educating health care providers about sexual health across the board. And certainly some sensitivity about STIs and, 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 and how to deal with uh, the diverse communities. What do you think we need? Just I'm just gonna, I'm just going to let you run with this, Doctor. Let what do we need to do to help healthcare providers do a better job supporting all, all these patients? We need to continue to talk to them, have meetings with them, have continuing education offerings with them, invite them to lunch. I probably say this often in Louisiana. You invite us to a meal and you can talk to us about anything. So I think it's continuously talking about it because there are times when we get a little insensitive, you see things so, so often that you forget about how important your role is. Remember that you're in a position of power. Think about having an egg and if that egg falls and breaks, it's your responsibility. So look at your clients, your patients, as people who are important. Think about what if it were you? I always 
talk about this. What if it were you or your family member? How would you like to be treated? And if you are in an area where you are not very comfortable with that, because there are some healthcare providers who will not take care of the sexual needs of patients, do not treat somebody unless you have examined them. I have an unfortunate case where there was a woman who came to see me who was following up from the emergency department where she was treated for pelvic inflammatory disease or PID. And she came to see me because she said, they treated me, but I do not like how I smell. When I conducted a speculum examination on her, she had three tampons in place. So you can never take anything for granted. Remember how you were taught you conduct a history to find out about the woman and get everything about the sexual health. Whether the person is sleeping with a man, whether the person is sleeping with a woman, whether the person is sleeping with both. Because I just wanna say that there are times when people use AIDS in sex, especially women with women, and these toys can actually be the culprits in transferring the infection back and forth. So if we do not know about that, then it's unlikely that that will come up in the conversation and they will continue to use that. And we will be thinking, okay, they are not taking their medication when that um, could actually be the culprit. So it's very, very important that we, we actually think about and um, think about those things. Yes. Yeah. And you just mentioned taking your medicine. So on my list of things, I completely ignored talking about the fact that trick is very curable, <laughs> simple antibiotic, you know, and yes. uh, that, which is why it's such a shame that these, that these adverse health outcomes sometimes happen because they don't have to, you know, but we've got to have the conversation started. We have to address all the things that you've, uh, that, that you've brought up. And, uh, you know, I, I think what we need, you mentioned uh, in Louisiana that the way to go about is to have a meal. I think we ought to launch a series of lunch with Dr. Linton and Fredo, and then we'll just start doing that. Uh, I'm okay. in whenever, whenever you'd like to. And, and the thing about it is that I'm learning that, you know, as healthcare providers, we are expected to be perfect. And we are expected not to be judgmental. Sometimes the judgmental piece, we can work with that. But the perfect piece, sometimes that's kind of hard, you know, to work with. But we really need to remember that we are imperfect. And in this case, we cannot do our jobs without the help of our patients. So we need to collect the right information from them. Remember that this has to be totally embarrassing, especially when you even talk about gender. Can you imagine a female saying this to a male that I smell and that when I have sex, it hurts or whatever? That cannot be a comfortable, con a comfortable conversation for that person. There are some women who do not mind because they already have a relationship with that male provider. So that's another thing, too, is that there are some cultures where they're not comfortable speaking about sexual health with a male. Sure. So in our health services organization, we need to remember that and at least have females 
one or two available who can take care of these people so that they feel as though they have options because a lot of times minorities are made to feel that this is only what is available to you. And I think everybody's a VIP, so make everybody feel like a very important person. You are amazing. And you know, when I was listening to you talk about minorities, uh, I've been completely remiss. I really haven't asked you anything about sexual minorities or, or the transgender communities. I imagine the barriers there are, are everything else, we've, everything we've talked about, plus the stigma that, that sometimes uh, uh, that they face in the system. I mean, imagine if you're a transgendered uh, man and you have a vagina and then you're trying to navigate a health system. I mean, that's got to be intimidating. Yes, and that is why we need to be able to treat these conditions in family practice. So because if they go to women's health, then they'll be busted. Somebody will know that something is wrong, but we want them to come and feel comfortable in the waiting room, having a man in the waiting room with a clinic that says women's health that's not going to work, yes. So they will be seen in family practice. So my family practice colleagues who are out there get comfortable with conducting pelvic examinations and speculum examinations. There you go. <laughs> there you go. And really finding a way just to make everybody feel welcome no matter where they're coming from. Uh, they, we all come from someplace and we've all yes. had issues. So we need, to, we need to take care of each other. Uh, yes, definitely. All right. Folks, if your healthcare provider isn't like Dr. Lenton, go find yourself one who is. <laughs> Dr. Lenton, thank you so much. You're just amazing. I just always love it when I talk with you. Thank you for your time today. And I hope we can do this again really soon. Thank you so much again for having me and for allowing me to shed light on a condition that is really very treatable and no woman should have to deal with. You're the best. Thank you to everybody who listens to this podcast. We appreciate you too. Uh, so check back with us often. We have actually other episodes where we've had conversations with Dr. Lenton. So, you know, check those out on the podcast page. If you have any feedback or any questions, you can email us at info at ashasexualhealth.org and we'll put that in the show notes. All right. Until next time. Thank you, everybody. Bye.